0: Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hey, good morning, everyone. And uh, for those of you who are new at Crosspoint, my name is Rob, uh, one of the pastoral staff here. And so glad you could be with us uh, this morning, and I'd love to get to know you, uh, meet you, say hi, and uh, so maybe we'll get a chance after the gathering this morning to do that. Uh, but I'm here today to introduce our guest speaker. But before I do that real quick, I just want to say for all of you who have been giving blood, sweat, and tears in the last three weeks um, for Crosspoint, and you know some of you are just like you inspire me by how much and how well you serve. Uh, I just want to say to all you guys, thank you. We can do this together by God's grace and through his power. And uh, we're excited. Yeah, you can clap with that. That's all right. Yeah. Um, it's been a whirlwind craziness. But, uh, yeah, it's been fun. It's been a good ride. And for those of you who were moving yesterday, awesome. Well done. Uh, we are now 23 days without a workplace incident. Um, so... This is good, no fingers cut off yet. Uh, hey this morning uh, one of the one of the great things that's uh, been a real help to us is that we've been able to bring in some some uh, guest speakers for the last couple of weeks uh, to help us along while I lean into the organization side of things and uh, start working upon the future and all of this because as you know this has been a bit of a whirling dervish in the last number of weeks as we're trying to get caught up to this uh, major decision. So this morning I want to introduce our guest speaker. Uh, He is from Sherwood Park Alliance Church, and let me just tell you, Sherwood Park Alliance Church, for those of you who are maybe newberries at Crosspoint in the last number of years, uh, since the beginning, Sherwood Park Alliance Church has really come alongside of us and helped us in so many ways uh, through financial contribution, uh, through uh, even helping us choose names, not choose names. Uh, They've been so good in so many different ways in serving us. But I tell you, when this thing first happened uh, with Crosspoint, we spoke to Sherwood Park Alliance Church and they said to us, how can we help you in this transition? I said, you know what? We could really use as some guest speakers. And they said, done, absolutely done. We're going to make this happen. So, of course, last week we had Brody come and speak. This week uh, we get to uh, hear from Greg Holhalter, And uh, he is the lead pastor of Sherwood Park Alliance Church. And so he's uh, swooping in today, and then he's going to swoop out and go to uh, back to SPAC a little bit later on. Uh, But he's here to speak. Now, Greg and I have a longtime friendship uh, since, actually, yeah, since Crosspoint started. That's when we really got to know each other. So he is a brother from a different mother, and uh, we're so glad that he's here this morning. Uh, He's going to maybe talk a little bit about that. But I just love this guy. I'm so excited that he's here at Crosspoint to share with us this morning morning, and he's going to come up here in just a second, but as he comes, you know what we need to do, is we need to give an official Crosspoint welcome this morning, and you know what that is. Uh, So ladies and gentlemen, without, I'm going to shut up now, uh, Greg Holhalter is coming to share with us this morning. So. (laughs)
1: Did I win? See, I was tipped off uh, because you had one of our guys here last week and he warned me. So I decided I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to see how long you'll go. In fact, uh, if you would have gone a few more minutes, we could have just gone to lunch and that would have been it. Thank you. That's kind of you. A couple things before we um, open God's Word. One is... um, In the church I grew up in, uh, it was like a sacred cow. You dare not put a drink on the communion table at the front of the church. So I'm looking for a place to put this down. So this is sort of the communion table, but any child of two could tell that that's a music stand with a cloth over it. (laughs) So it's okay if I put this coffee down right here, right? Okay, my mother would be freaking out right now if she were here. A couple things. First of all, thank you, Rob, uh, for your graciousness, and Karen as well for being such great hosts. Uh, I can't believe... Uh, This is the first time I've been able to be present with you physically and worship with you. Uh, That is a treat to me. It's a gift to me. Uh, Yeah, I was uh, aware of this church while you were just a... Uh, a glimmer in Rob's eye. Before you were born, I knew you and and, uh, because we had some of those conversations early on. And uh, so I've been following, but we've been cheering you on from afar. Um, I want you to know that I feel really comfortable in this environment because for 11 years of my adult life, I was a church planter in temporary facilities. So this feels very normal to me. I feel very at home in a place like this. In fact, I sometimes I will, I will say to our people or to leaders or others, Deep down inside, I still think of myself as an entrepreneurial startup church, church planter type. That's what I enjoyed most in my pastoral career arc, if I can use a goofy term like that. But I love what you're doing and what you are. You're hardly a church plant anymore. You're a fully functioning, fully orbed uh, gospel preaching, teaching church. And I love that. Uh, I do think, however, that what you're about to do is a game changer. Uh, you're moving into a space that is a tool. uh, Buildings in this part of the world are just tools for ministry. They're discipleship tools. But in this part of the world, space, physical space, is a really helpful tool to have. And I want you to know that we have been tracking this journey, this uh, process the last few months. Um, Some of the folks at Beverly had been leaning into our church a little bit. And some of our families, three or four families from our church, had been really trying to kind of keep Beverly alive and keep it going. And, and so we've been kind of coaching and helping a little bit. And I've spoken at Beverly twice in the last few weeks. And so we've been very close to this whole situation. But uh, for several weeks and months now, for me at least, and several others in our leadership core and our staff, uh, it kept coming back to, why isn't Crosspoint going down there. It just would seem to be a, a, a good thing. So I really think this is an, a significant a defining moment for you as a church. And it's going to change some things just as a person who's done this before when you move. and you, Because this the, the ethos, the personality of this church has been somewhat formed by this space, right? And, and by being here. And so I assure you that when you get in there the first couple of weeks, there will be some, oh, this is great. And there will also be some, this doesn't feel like Crosspoint anymore. There'll be some of that. I would just encourage you to push through that, push through some of the weirdness, because having this space that you can use to have as home base uh, financially, I I believe it'll be a win, but just being able to do uh, children's ministry and youth ministry and everything else in this space uh, in a part of the city that desperately needs a uh, healthy gospel expression i just i can't wait to see what happens and i will pledge our ongoing support as a sister church in sherwood park um, where you're going to be on 50th street i love the term 50th street project that's like 12 minutes from my house Um, and so outside of our daughter church heartland uh, you will now be the closest physical church alliance church christian and missionary alliance church to our church and um so if that matters, it doesn't matter that much, but we're neighbors, and uh, anything we can do, anything we can do to celebrate with you and be a part of what you're going to do, uh, I can't wait uh, to see what happens. So thanks for that. Uh, your pastor, your lead pastor, is a deeply respected colleague by me and by many in our district and in our city, and we're cheering you around. I think these are great, great days for you. A lot of work. I can feel that, uh, but we're really, really excited about what God is going to do. Um, so let me quickly pray. Would you mind, and then uh, we'll turn uh, our attention to God's word. Father, thanks for the opportunity for me to be here. Thank you for what you've done in this place. Thank you for um, the fact that this congregation is on the precipice of a whole new thing. And I pray, God, that the uh, that the best days would be ahead. I thank you so much for all the great ministry that's happened in this space. But we look forward to what you're going to do in redeeming this, um, another physical space uh, that's going to allow this church to thrive and, and, and be able to experiment and take risks in a whole new way. So I pray blessing on this congregation that you would use them and prepare them, keep them unified and ready for what you're going to do. In your name I pray. Amen. So when Rob invited uh, myself to speak, Brody to speak, we were talking about you know what would be helpful, and he talked a little bit about courage, we sang about that a few minutes ago, and trust, and some of those issues, given the fact that you're on the, the, the front end of this great new adventure. And so uh, whenever I think in those terms, I go to my one of my favorite Bible characters, uh, David. I know Brody uh, talked from The Life of David last week, and we did that on purpose. We said, hey, let's do some messages from The Life of David. Uh, we know more about David, maybe, than almost any other biblical character He's considered the greatest king in Israel. He's a human ancestor to Jesus Christ. His story, his accomplishments, his problems, his failures are really well chronicled in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. David is a Renaissance man. He's a crazy guy. He's the youngest of eight sons. David was a shepherd. He was a musician. He's a poet. He's a fierce fighter. He's a dynamic leader, and he's flawed. He is horrifically flawed. He's a very interesting guy. And his story is filled with a lot of crazy accounts of hand-to-hand combat, of seduction, of abuse, of love, of lies, of betrayal and deception. And embedded in his story are great lessons about leadership and hope and dealing with disappointment. Now, one of the things I love about his story is that although he's a king, he's a warrior, he's a military leader, he's all of these things, he's an adulterer and an accessory to murder. I hope that's not true of any of you. But even though he's, he's these things, he's all of these things, his life experiences, and I might have to convince you for a second, but his life experiences actually intersect with my life experiences and your life experiences, maybe even more than you think. And if you doubt that, just... Hang in here with me for a few minutes. Now, if there's one story from David's life that almost everybody knows about, if you're part of the church, not part of the church, grew up in church, didn't go to Sunday, whatever, most people know about the big one, the early one, that happens when he fights and defeats a giant of a man named Goliath. This whole thing happens about the 11th century B.C., long before David becomes king in Israel. And a lot of you will know some of the details, at least, that David is this little teenager. He's a kid. He's a boy when he fights Goliath. And you probably know some of the details, you know, the stones and the sling and all of that. And the story has been glamorized over time. We make it out to be this, you know, this triumphant thing. And, uh, but if you look at the story closely in 1 Samuel 17, it's actually kind of a bloody mess. It's a bloody mess. Now, the 11th century BC is a bloody time. And that's one of the things that sometimes people struggle with about the, the Old Testament scriptures, these stories, because it's a harsh world. It's a violent world. Now, our world is violent too. It's plenty violent. Um, our daughter, um, a 21-year-old daughter, uh, was just down the hall about 40, 50 meters um, this past week when that gentleman was attacked uh, in Southgate and uh, later died. And uh, so last night, you know, just you know, she was home, and uh, we just sat in her bedroom talking about you know, what it's like to not necessarily be an eyewitness. She wasn't an eyewitness to this event, but she was just a few meters away from somebody being murdered. And that's a violent world that we live in, and uh, you all know that. Sometimes those violent episodes happen close to us, but modern warfare is not typically up close and personal. In ancient worlds, uh, warfare was very up close and personal. But in our world, uh, most warfare, when you're talking about armies, these things take place from a distance, from ships and helicopters and airplanes and long-range guns and now drones and that sort of thing years ago uh, in one of the church plants I was part of in, near Seattle, uh, we uh, had a church uh, that met in a facility a lot like this right outside the gates of Bangor Submarine Base, a Trident Nuclear Missile Submarine Base of the U.S. Navy. And we got to know a lot of our people in our church were Navy personnel or this sort of thing. And one of the guys, one of our board members actually uh, worked on the wharf, Delta Pier they called it, and he was able to get me and my wife out for a day cruise on board a Trident Nuclear Ballistic missile submarine, very, very cool, pre 9 11 but very, very cool that they let us go out here and, and do this thing. Uh, on this submarine, 450-some feet long, 24 individual missile tubes, multiple-tipped warheads, they say that one Trident nuclear missile submarine carries more firepower than all the weaponry unleashed during World War I, one submarine. And the whole mission of Trident subs is to go out into wherever submerge for 70 to 90 days and be on stealth mode undetected and if ever called upon to unleash their multiple warheads on targets thousands of miles away. That's what a Trident nuclear missile submarine is to do. Though they've never done it, but that's the way it works. But from thousands of miles away, that's the way these uh, weapons are built to um, do their thing. 11th century BC, warfare is nothing like that. Warfare in the ancient world is very up close. It's very personal. The furthest you would likely be from your combatant would be maybe the tip of a sword or the distance that you could throw something. It's very likely that in warfare, you'll be up close and personal, and you'll smell the breath of the person that you're fighting. You'll see the look in their eyes. If you kill that person, some of that person's blood will likely end up on you. And again, you'll be so close that you can see what's going on in their eyes. You can, you can maybe see fear. You might notice if they're drunk or if they're in some drug-induced haze of some kind. If you see the look of total calm in your combatant's eyes, That should scare you, because you will know at that moment you're probably battling a trained, hardened, experienced killer. And if you survive when the battle is over, that's when you will go back and find a place to assess your own wounds because nobody gets through that kind of battle unscathed. You'll go back and you'll look at the blood and try to determine if it's yours or if it's your enemies and whether or not their scratches are on you or punctures on you. And if you survive the battle at all, as you go back to camp, you may still likely bleed out or die from infection. And if you do die... There is very little chance that anybody will come along and bury you. You will probably fall where you are around um, several others who have fallen, and nobody will come and pick you up. And within certainly hours, but maybe even minutes, birds of the air and beasts of the field will come and prey upon your flesh. How's that for an introduction, Rob? (laughs) You ever done an intro like that? That's gross. All right, here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war... And assembled at Sochah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephistamim between Sokah and Ezgah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went out ahead of him. A couple of comments here. Uh, six cubits in a span, roughly translated, is about nine feet tall. Somebody like that would be wearing several hundred pounds of armor. He would have a javelin or a spear. It says in this case his uh, point of a spear weighs 600 shekels. Uh, that means just the tip of a spear uh, is... 20 pounds, roughly. Now, to just help you picture that a little bit, most of you have picked up a 20-pound turkey, you know, maybe at Thanksgiving. Just imagine sticking a broomstick into a 20-pound frozen turkey and just sort of imagining what that would feel like. That's kind of what Goliath is swinging around. And it says in verse 1 that the armies draw up battle lines That is, they would likely form a front line. That's how ancient warfare worked. So you'd have these soldiers, pawns in a sense, like in chess, and they would take their shields and form a battle line, and they would try to form sort of a a bit of a, a human wall there. But it says Goliath is so big, he can actually reach over that wall and sort of pick people off that way. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul?' Got to stop there for a second and um, let you know, in case you don't know, Saul is an important character in David's story. Saul is Israel's first king. David is Israel's second king, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, but um, the story goes on. Choose a man and have him come down to me, Goliath says. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects, but if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This is the deal in effect, the deal that Goliath seeks to make. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And most of you probably say, Yep, that seems about right. So day after day, this takes place. Week after week, there's this standoff here. Goliath comes out and issues the challenge. Nobody takes him up on it. He goes back, hits the beach chair, waits for a few hours, comes back, maybe at sundown, does it again. Same thing happens over and over again. So Israel needs a champion. They need somebody. They need a leader to step up and do something. They need someone to step up and do something about this bully. And if there's any person to do it, it's their king. Because Israel has a king, his name is Saul. If anybody's going to stand up and do something about Goliath, it should be Saul. He happens to be the tallest guy in Israel. Now, he's not Goliath tall, but he's a big dude. He's he's probably the most physically imposing of all of the people on that side of the line. So if there's anybody that has a chance, maybe the logic goes, you know, he's not quite as big as Goliath, but he's kind of smart, so maybe he can do something about this guy. After all, he's our only hope. Now, if you can do this for a second with me, big time out here for just a second, okay? Uh, Because this is the first place where our lives intersect with this story and with David's life and all that's going on here. Uh, Because hear it like this All human beings, no matter who they are or where they are, human beings always place their hope in someone. They put their hope somewhere, but more often they put their hope and trust on someone. And if you're unclear about who it is that you have placed your hope in or on whatever, that you've placed your hope likely somewhere, it's whoever you are most inclined to depend on. Whoever it is that you depend on the most, that is likely where you've placed your hope. One reason why so many people experience life with a general sense of disappointment is that they have placed their hope in someone and that someone has disappointed them just watch for that when you see people maybe this is your story if you get this general sense of disappointment somebody has likely disappointed you for a long time that was kind of part of my story maybe it is still a little bit of my story because I had a father that I couldn't depend on he wasn't a good dad he died about four years ago And uh, even though uh, pretty early on I realized that this guy's kind of a piece of work, I didn't use that term when I was 12 or 13 years old, but I knew something was off with my dad. And I knew that he was not a dependable person, and he was someone that, you know, pretty consistently over the course of my adult life, my childhood, he let me down. And it wasn't until he died that I realized kind of how deeply disappointed I was in my dad. Like I stood at his casket by myself going, oh, I wish I had some tears to conjure up here, but I kind of just went whatever. So I got some daddy issues. Any psychologists in the room? here yeah, Anyway. A lot of people have dad wounds, mom wounds. Uh, we experience um, life with a lot of disappointment and even conflict sometimes because we've placed our hope in our parents. I lived in the same house from birth until I turned 18 years old, and I was surrounded almost uh, by the same group of neighbors, very little movement on, on our street, um, but I never placed my hope in the Gulls or the Andersons or the Nagels or the Bachmeyers or the Schottkies or the Burchenalls German neighborhood. <laughs> As a kid, I placed my hope and trust in my parents. I depended on them. See, all human beings place their hope somewhere or most likely on someone. Parents, spouses, kids, sometimes we place our trust and our hope in careers or money or glory or whatever. We place our hope and trust in someone or on someone. So back to the story. Back in the Valley of Elah, where the standoff continues, Saul is missing in action. He's maybe back in his trailer or something like that while Saul was making threats. He's not going up to the front lines. And with each passing day, Saul's credibility among his people is diminishing because they're kind of saying, come on, man, do something. But he just stays back in his tent. And their hope is eroding now. Their hope is slowly dying. And by the way, again, just one of these great intersections, step back for a second here. This scene, this stalemate between Israel and Philistine uh, illustrates something that is one of the great themes of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, is the story of God's relationship, his uh, interactions with this group of people in Israel, with the Jewish people. And from the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, what God wants most is for his people to look to him as king. That's really the big story of the Old Testament. God does not want them to have a human king. God wants Israel to look to him. That's the whole Old Testament story in a sense. And the reason this is such a big deal to God is that he knows that wherever it is or in whomever you place your trust, that's where you'll place your hope. And God wants Israel to place their hope in him. About 400 years before this battle between David and Goliath, God establishes Israel as a theocracy, a nation under God's law, administrated by judges. His intent was God, the one true God, would be king. God would be king, God would give the law, and judges would administrate the law. And this idea of Israel having a monotheistic god, it would actually cause Israel to stand out among the neighboring nations. It would make them very unique because most of the nations had multiple gods and a human king. And so you would think that at least uh, initially this would be attractive to Israel, especially given their experiences in Egypt with the Pharaoh. But here they are all these years later, and they begin to clamor for a king. They want a human authority, they want a human being to lead them uh, at this. This time the prophet Samuel is not, he's not king, but he's a significant voice of influence. And they go to Samuel, the prophet, and say, we want a king. All the other nations, all the other cool nations have a king. Why can't we have a king? We want a king. This what all happened a few years before David's battle with Goliath. Samuel, the prophet, the leading prophet with influence, uh, agrees and he says, uh, okay, we're going to make this happen now. Samuel, uh, before all of this king stuff happens, Samuel begins, because he gets to be a little bit older, he's going to do some succession planning, even on the prophet role. And so he begins to groom his sons to take over his gig. I think maybe even in a way, this is Samuel's way of trying to, uh, let's try to hold off a little bit. I know I'm getting old and all of that, so let me see if my sons can rise up here a little bit and, in a prophet role and maybe you know, tamp down this desire for a king. And when Samuel grew old, for Samuel 8 now, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel's best laid plans kind of blow up in his face because his sons are corrupt, which is part of the reason why then the people start to clamor for A king. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. Which seems rather harsh. But they they just say, You are old, man. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. We want a king. We want a king. So here's what the people were forgetting. God had established his nation, this nation, for a specific purpose. Their creation story began when God made a promise to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to birth a nation through you, but this will not be for your glory or for your fame. My hope, my expectation is that I will bless you and you will in turn be a blessing to the other nations of the world and out of you will flow a true king through which the whole world will be blessed. This is the great plan. God has this agenda for Israel. He wants Israel to be unique, to be successful as a nation, but above all else to be faithful He wants Israel to be dependent on him, to be loyal to him, and that as he prospers them and sustains them, he wants the surrounding nations to look at Israel and say, who's your God? He does not hope that the surrounding nations say to Israel, who's your king? He's hopeful that they will say, who's your God? But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, and so he prayed to the Lord. So Samuel inquired of the Lord, and God gave him something back. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as king. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Check this part out. This is where God says, okay, you know, give them what they want, but, but warn them. Warn them about what they're going to uh, experience. He basically, God is saying to the prophet, tell them this isn't going to end well. Just warn them. You know, a king is going to tax you silly. He's going to take a percentage of your crops. He's going to take herds. He's going to want to form an army, and that means he's going to go after your sons. He's likely to want a harem And you know what that means, right? Samuel warns everybody, but they don't care. They say, we don't care. We want a king. Give us a king. Their unrelenting insistence on a king other than God is the backdrop of this whole detailed and crazy uh, story of David that we find in this huge chunk of the Old Testament. This is the context of First and Second Samuel. All of this is this this battle between uh, human kings and, and God being the one true king. Now David, by the time he shows up, he's the second king. He's considered Israel's greatest king, and it's said about him in two different places in the book of Acts, as well as in 1 Samuel, that he possesses a heart after God, and that's where the message title comes from, a heart after God. David has this heart that makes him unique. Something else that is unique about David is that he loves and respects the law. I, I like to talk about this a little bit because a lot of people, when they know the details of David's story, they say, how can this man who was so creepy have a, you know, this heart after God? Well, this is part of it. He, um, uh, he doesn't violate the law. He respects the law. See, kings most of the time throughout history, when a law comes up against something they want, they just change the law, which they can do in that time, because the king's word is final. They can just sort of basically do whatever they want. But throughout his reign, even though David will mess up royally, David will not amend the law, even when it condemns him. David allows himself to be broken by God's law. God's law will be like a rudder in his life. God's law will give David clarity and confidence, and purpose. So yeah, and he's super, super flawed, but this is why, part of the reason why we say he's got a heart after God is because he allows the law to take its toll on him. David never gets confused about who it is that is Israel's true king. He lives his whole life deeply aware that there's a God and it's not him. i just put it to you that way. Despite his success, his talent, his fame, his power, he will never be confused about who's king. Okay, time out again. This is another place where our stories, your stories, my story intersects with uh, David's. See, a lot of us have yet to figure out what David knew, that each of us has sort of a throne in our life, and our ongoing battle is who's or what's on that throne. All of us at times battle with what's or who's on our thrones. And I'll also say it this way, most of our most regrettable mistakes happen when we're sitting on our throne. When we're sitting on our own throne, that's when bad things happen. David, despite his flaws, doesn't usually make that mistake, at least, at least in hoping in himself. So on hearing the Philistines' words, we're way back to where we were. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So a few weeks Uh, into the standoff. David shows up at the Israelite camp. He's got a care package from dad for some of the brothers who serve in Saul's army. He's naturally curious, so he makes his way up to the front where the action is, or in this case, where the action is not, because there's not a lot happening up there. And David is close enough to hear Goliath come out one day and make his taunts. And David responds in um, not the way you would assume. David is not scared. David's actually ticked. David's offended by this. He hears this challenge and he sees how Saul is not willing to step up and fight and nobody else is willing to step up either. And so David starts asking questions. David asks the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You can imagine, you know, this kid walking up and saying something like that. It's probably not going, very, going down very well with the other soldiers. They're probably like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? They sneer at David. They actually call him a punk and they tell him to get lost. For the soldiers, this is a military operation. They have no idea how they're going to deal with this nine-foot oaf there across the valley. This is a hardened soldier. But David does not see this showdown as a military problem. He sees this as a spiritual problem. This is a spiritual problem. Who is this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, which basically means don't overthink that part because that will get you off in some rabbit trail in your brain. It just means he's outside the covenant of God. He's outside the covenant. Who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of God and threaten to take away something that's been promised by God? Why hasn't somebody done something yet. So David leaves the front lines. He works his way back and finds Saul's trailer, tent, whatever. And he talks himself into an audience with Saul. And he gets in front of Saul and he says, listen, I'll do it. I'll go. I'll I'll do this. For weeks, you know, Saul has been hoping for a solution, hoping that maybe if he stalls long enough, maybe the Israelite champion will have a, a massive MI or a TIA and fall and get sick, or I don't know, somebody might be identified who can come forward and give Israel a chance. And, and now he's got this kid basically volunteering in what has to be a suicide mission. Saul has to see it this way. This teenage kid, shepherd boy, no scars, no experience, no armor. And when Saul threatens to just toss him out of his office, David says, listen, listen, I know I don't look like much, I know I'm young and all that, but one day I was taking care of my dad's sheep when a lion attacked and carried off a lamb. And rather than protecting the rest of the herd and letting that that little lamb go, I left the herd and I chased down the lion and I got a hold of that lion, I killed that lion and I brought back the animal, uh, the, the lamb. I did the same thing with the bear one day, listen, listen. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, he says, the Lord. In other words, I did not do this in my own power. This was in the power of God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. There's no hesitation for David. There's no confusion because his hope is in his heavenly father. And that gives him great clarity. Goliath is defying God. And David knows, this is the conviction that he'll carry throughout his life. He knows that anyone who places their hope in the Lord need not fear. Anyone who places their hope in the Lord need not fear. So David says, hey, so just pick me. Let me do this. Let me do what nobody else is willing to do, what you as king Are unwilling to do. And this is the moment. This is the day when David's rocket ride to kingship begins. Later, as king, David will develop his gifts in writing. He's a poet, he's a musician. And the really cool thing about David's story is that we have a whole lot of his history. We don't just have the narratives, the events, the things that happen, but we have dozens and dozens and dozens of his psalms that he wrote. And these psalms give us insight into his state of mind. We actually get kind of behind and see what's going on in his head. We, it's like we have his journal. We can read David's journal. And one day, David, this flawed guy, David will write this, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, oh Lord, my God, I put my trust. When David is asked by kids or by his servants, hey, David, you know, kind of where do you get this resolve, that trust? He'll never tell them, well, it's just in my talent, you know, my experience, my power, my influence, my education. He will say, my trust is in the Lord. That's how he'll answer when he's asked. My trust is in the Lord. This is how David gets right, at least in this case, what Israel so often gets wrong. It's this posture of trust. This is the posture that God had desired for Israel. And here David is living out of it in this case. They demand a king, and for a while, their second king will actually be someone who gets it, someone who knows what God is after. And then David, he writes something He writes stuff that kings never write. You do not hear kings write stuff like this. He says, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Kings do not write like that. Donald Trump does not. No, I'm sorry, didn't go there. Um, David says, I will never put my hope in myself. And then he says, Guide me in your truth, teach me, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. So, this young guy, 14, 15 years old, eyes wide open, with a mysterious, almost perfect, equal mix of confidence and humility, makes his way down to the valley floor. And it's pretty easy to imagine the Philistines when this kid, this boy, pushes through the crowd, through the wall, and he says, all right, Goliath, let's do this. You know, let's, let's go. The Philistines, they laugh. It's a kid. He doesn't even have armor. He's got, you know, just a kid. It's, and it's easy to imagine the feelings of the Israelite soldiers. You know, if a couple of them are live-tweeting the event, they're probably doing that. I can't believe what's happening. SMH, this is not going to go well, you know. Saul was letting this kid come out and represent the armies of Israel. And when it becomes clear to Goliath and the Philistines that this is no joke, Goliath gets up off his beach chair and says, All right, where's my spear? Gets his stuff. He repeats his threat. He goes out there and issues the same challenge he's given week after week. And when he finishes, David calmly but firmly answers back. And this is so cool. (laughs) He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, whom you have defiled. And here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to deliver you into my hands. I will take you down and I will give your carcass And the carcasses of the Philistine armies to the birds and the animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here today will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For this battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into my hands. And then he killed him. And instantly, David became Biggest hero, the most popular person in all of Israel, and the most feared man among all the Philistines. And the rest of the Philistines, they have a chance of survival. The deal is the loser's army has to become the servants of the winners, but the Philistines make a bad decision. Uh, they make a bad decision. They actually turn. Rather than surrender, they turn and they run, and Israel pursues them, and the scriptures tell us that the slaughter lasted all day long. David knows something that Saul should have known, that anyone who places their hope in the Lord need not fear. Those who hope in the Lord see the world with clearness, with certainty. They act with sureness, but they also walk through life with humbleness. Those who hope in the Lord uh, know what it means to abandon outcomes. That phrase is a a concept, a thought that a, a friend of mine gave to me a few years ago. Someone whose hope is in the Lord knows that control, in this world is basically an illusion. Those who hope in the Lord know what it's like to lean the weight of their life against the one who has the world in his hands. That's what that means. Uh, uh, Just a few weeks ago, uh, a touring musician friend of mine was on a cross-country tour, and and, uh, I hadn't seen him for a little while, so my wife and I went to see his concert when he was in Edmonton, and And uh, we had dinner, and and, uh, he told me, we've known him for quite a while, he said, my grandma is dying. Like, I hope to make it. He's from BC. I hope to make it home on this tour before she passes away. I want to see her one more time. And uh, so she was, like, literally in hospice, kind of on her deathbed. And he said, look at what my grandma texted me this morning. And and with his permission, I read you the text that my friend's grandma sent to him. Uh, she wrote, she's like 90 years old, She's wrote, good morning, all is fine, I'm still breathing and peeing. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that I've gone to be with the Lord and he allowed me to take my phone with me, but how could I lie and expect him to take me there then? LOL, you know, there's a woman on her deathbed saying, I'm still breathing, I'm still peeing. Um, that's what a person sounds like when they put their trust in the Lord. And I just imagine her resting in this example of David, these words of David. Words are ri- right at the epicenter of David's story. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. So, church, can I just paint a picture for you of waking up tomorrow morning? And I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're going to work. Maybe you're going to school, whatever. Whatever. Making this declaration at the start of your day, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. And then imagine, you know, maybe some of you going to work and closing that deal or figuring out that problem or getting, uh, you know, a great at-a-boy or attagirl a raise or something. And even in that moment, refusing to say, hey, aren't I good? But just saying under your breath, in you, oh Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you. Imagine going to work tomorrow or this week and making a huge mistake, like losing that account or facing an irate boss, and in that moment saying to yourself internally, in you, O Lord my God, I put my trust. Imagine getting some bad news this week or whatever news it is, and just whatever it is, just saying underneath it all, in you, O Lord my God, I put my trust. Imagine as you take this big journey as a church into this great new 50th Street Adventure, And just having that in the back of your minds the whole time. I don't know how we're going to pull this off. This is crazy. This is nuts. This is insane. In you, oh Lord, my God, we put our trust. Whether it happens this week or sometime down the road, when you come to that time when it feels like the world has turned against you, when Goliath looks like he wants to take you down, what will give you the strength in that moment are these words. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you. That's the lesson from David, an imperfect man, an imperfect king. Would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredibly rich narrative that reminds us of your faithfulness and reminds us of the opportunity that we have to live life as individuals and as a church body completely dependent on you. With the words of the psalmist, with the words of David in Psalm 25, stick with us now. And you, O oh Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Bring those back to us when we need them. We're going to need them this week. We're going to need them today. So let us live out of that reality. In your name we pray these things. Amen.